So packing then is the same, I suppose. I had packed five times previously only for Lebanon. But again, this was something like the original trip that I'd gone away on because we were informed that there was absolutely nothing outside, so we had to go off and get everything that we would need, a six-month supply of everything from um, a toilet roll to the old cotton buds, if you like, for cleaning your ears or between your toenails. It's good that it's finished. Why? <laughs> Why? Yeah, was it tough in the last few weeks? Ah, it was, yeah. Well, well, not, yeah. Not knowing when we were going to get out of the place. I know, started, no. yes, yes. But uh, we made it, and it was... It was I'm glad it was there. Yeah, I'm sure. And that's I'm about sure. the point of it. Yeah. Tell me, uh, what did it look like with everything gone? It was a big brown field. Ah, <laughs> Just as you said in a the big beginning. big brown field, exactly. <laughs> that's what it was like when it was finished. Do the people know what a BBF is? They do. You tell <laughs> The BBF was where we lived and it was the big brown field. And we did. We left the big brown field behind us. They ventured out, they coped extremely well and they all returned safely. This is the story of the number one and number two transport companies of the Irish Defence Forces on a peace enforcement mission in Somalia. They left Ireland in September 1993 and returned September 1994, ending the European involvement in Somalia. It all started with the number one company in the big brown field. The real VBF, <laughs> uh, human skull, <laughs> that's all that occupied the field when we arrived. Did you find the skull? Aye, <laughs> uh, it was just lying on top of the ground. Uh, well, we started off, uh, as soon as the lads arrived, uh, unloaded everything and uh, proceeded to set it up. We had the assistance from supervisors from Weatherhaven. And they, basically, yeah. they basically showed us... Uh, we divided up into groups, like uh, different groups, and one crowd would uh, set down the foundations and the crowd put down the floors. It took us ten hard, grueling days, let me tell you. Uh, we were usually up or about about half past four, quarter to five. And about halfway through the day. You're right. Half past four, quarter to five, and a bit of breakfast. And as soon as first light started, we started working. How did you manage when there was nothing to sleep in? Well, that was part of my job when I went out first myself and another chap who actually had to be repatriated. Uh, we got a loan of six big quiet tents off the French and erected those and they were the temporary accommodation like when the lads came out. That's all they had. <laughs> six tents. It was very dusty and we had intermittent kind of showers. It was nothing really heavy. That was to come later. We, Overall, it yeah, we had a, a particularly bad day or a bad couple of days, and it was just terrible. Like, you know, I mean, you gained six inches walking around, it just clung to the heels of your shoe or the soles of your boots. What you mean, you grew taller? You grew taller, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it gets everywhere. Oh, it's been so messy. beds, yes, yeah, very, very messy. I can't believe it, you know, that it looks so good now. I mean, as pants yeah. go that when you arrived it was just nothing but a field. It's big brown field. The whole camp itself, the camp was probably the Hilton of Somalia uh, and that includes when the Americans were when all the contingents were there. We had the, by far the best camp in Somalia. 
completely air conditions. The units, I think, cost somewhere in the region of about three quarters of a million pounds, give or take a few shillings, I don't know. But it was set up by uh, the first transport company and we inherited it. Uh, it was in great condition. Private O'Brien Gerard. Private O'Brien William. Yes. Private O'Connell. Yes. Corporal O'Grady. Yes. Private Brian. Yes. Private Hogan. Serial number 26. Okay. Now I believe we have some people travelling with us also. Yes, me. It was very windy and cold as we set off. 80 men, one lady driver, from McKee Barracks to Dublin Airport, Nairobi and Somalia. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right, gentlemen, remember, that's your manifest order. The people in the ad want to check us all off again. If you heard there too, my name has just been called out. Here am I, setting off to Somalia with 18 men. Start a couple of dumpers. Hook, hook, and in. Never mind, I'm starting a private lobby. We're travelling the newer bus. We're getting a little bit more luxury. We're on the luxury to go out the window and soon we get outside. So come on to yourself and now. Look, yes, big. Great tossing, more assault. It's a tough mission, uh, don't get it wrong, a very tough mission, uh, the weather is extreme. Good evening ladies and gentlemen, we in Aer Lingus are delighted to be with you on this flight to Nairobi. Captain Brian Lang is in charge. As soon as we were in the air, I went in search of the first timers. I was never anywhere before now. My first trip abroad with the Army. And how do you feel about it? Um, I haven't made up my mind yet. <laughs> I haven't decided. But you did volunteer. Oh, I did volunteer, yeah. And why did you never volunteer for Lebanon? It never appealed to me. Never, never thought. I never wanted to go to the Lebanon. And what, what does it appeal to you about Somalia? I haven't decided yet. I don't know. <laughs> Well, our main purpose really was a military purpose, and that was to um, resupply the Indian Brigade. Everything from food, uh, fuel, ammunition, petrol and supplies, as they say in the army. We, that was our job. As a supply and transport unit, our job was to supply these people on the ground. You're from Donegal, are you? That's right, yeah. yeah. And have you been to Lebanon lots of times? I've been there twice. And you volunteered for Somalia? Yeah, that's right. How do you feel about this one? Ah, I don't know, but nervous, suppose, see what it's like. It's exciting. It's exciting, I don't know, with that. it's just here, it's the scariest part. I know, exactly. Okay. Once, once you're there, it's okay. okay. <laughs> Hold your hand. Are you scared of an aeroplane? Scared, wee bit. And you've never been anywhere before? Never been anywhere, overseas, Lebanon, nowhere. nowhere. How do you feel about this? Brilliant, brilliant. I'm surprised I got this trip, you know, Why Somalia. You? You're a good driver. Good driver, yeah. Hopefully, yeah, uh, man, yes. So my CO says. <laughs> How was your day like today? Eh, uh, great. Kind of didn't expect half the treatment we got anyways, you know. And it felt really important more than anything else, you know. What kind of treatment did you get? Well, like, all the high-ranking officers coming down to say goodbye and things like that, you know. I never thought that'd happen, you know. The size of this plane. <laughs> Great, oh, it? brilliant, brilliant. And all the room as well. Massive. 
massive. I was, I was on small planes, all right, but never on this big. <laughs> I'm amazed at staying up. <laughs> Here you're the medic. That's right, yeah. I want to know about the injections, all the injections they got. Well, they started off with um, yellow fever. Um, then went down to the College of Surgeons. We got uh, rabies and meningitis. We got three of those. First one, you get one the first day you go. Then the next week, then you get another one. And then the third week, actually, it's, it's a month from the first to the last. And then they got um, hepatitis A if they required it, hepatitis B. And we were tested for HIV as well, so everybody is clear. So they're going out here with a completely clean bill of health. I know you can't hear him here, but the captain is telling us that we're approaching Nairobi and that the weather is wonderful and that we'll be landing very shortly. And in front of me are all these guys tripping off, showing their chests and taking off their clothes because it's going to be so hot because they left, of course, in their heavy, their heavy uniforms. And I'm surrounded by bare-chested and tattooed guys. We're all going to lose weight now with all the sweat in their saying. There's a powerful lot of stripping going on. Try lucky, surrounded by men stripping. Did they give you glasses, sunglasses? Uh, yeah. Don't know what they're like, though. We haven't got them yet. Oh, have you got any of your stuff yet, really? Uh, well, we have this here this and boots, stuff like that. What else are you going to get when you get there? Uh, we're supposed to be getting t-shirts and... Um, what else are we getting? T-shirts. What? What else are we getting? T-shirts and... Uh, Hats, sunglasses, uh, creams, and um, that's basically it. I bet you're dying to get settled in. Yeah, definitely. Please put out your cigarettes now. Don't smoke again until the officers give you permission. Thanks. So we're back on the tarmac, and again the men march on. Inside a very different story from the luxury of the 767. This is the real transport plane. It's extremely hot and extremely noisy. And here again, a roll call to make sure no one has escaped. Private Connolly. Yes. Private Grimes. Yes. Private Hogan. Yes. All aboard. And uh, Mr. Peter Bourne. That's me. I beg your pardon, Captain Peter Bourne. Um, I hadn't got you on the original one. <laughs> oh, I told you, Faraday couldn't count. <laughs> <laughs> We settle in on the Hercules, all with our earplugs. So there's nothing to do but doze off. The pilot apologised for the facilities. None. The meals? None. And tongue-in-cheek, he said, because there were two ladies on board, they were too embarrassed to show the in-flight movie. After two and a half hours, we arrive in Baidoa. And, oh boy, the heat. Just to put you in context now, that's the main runway, obviously, and that's Camp Shannon just over there. See with the writing on the top of the... Oh, I do, yeah. On the rope yes. hall. Yeah. That's how, and everything else is Indian, more or less, as you see. That's the main gate of the whole place. I see. What did you think about that ride in that aeroplane, the Hercules? Ah, uh, it wasn't too bad, but it, uh, 
the, the noise was the oh, killer part of it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. You know, the noise, you know. Actually, it was more comfortable than I expected. See, there was a lot of talk before, like, I mean, how bad it's not, that it might be, but, yeah. like, yeah. it wasn't too bad after all. It was only the noise, like, you know, that's what I thought, right, yeah. The noise, like, you know. This is kind of a desolate place, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. You're going to be here for six months. <laughs> <laughs> I heard somebody on the plane said, ah, no, I don't think I'll stay. I think I'll stay back. <laughs> <laughs> the rules are very simple, that when we worked, we worked very hard, we worked professionally, we got up in the middle of the night, uh, long days, hard work. But uh, once we were off, fellas, like, there was no uh, blinding discipline in the camp. Fellas could walk around in flip-flops and shorts. Yeah, when they were the off, they were off. But where did you go, though? You only still had a camp. Well, there, there was, was nowhere, nowhere to, to go. To. It was like an open prison, in fact. And that was one of the reasons we had such a lax uh, discipline within the camp, that if you had you kept the... Uh, the discipline up and kept fellas under thumb. I think fellas would have cracked up. There was nowhere to go. There was the, the camp itself and the airfield, as you know. Uh, the good news was that the support kept things together. Everyone was very, very fit. It was um, Most guys ran the, the runway, like myself, uh, for the first couple of months and then end up walking it. And uh, it was only later I discovered some of them were running it two and three times a day and two and three times at a run. I could barely <laughs> make it around myself once. That's quite sufficient for me. But when you think, I mean, there was 80 men and their amusement was to walk the runway. Yes. Incredible. Yes. Just amazing. There was, there was nothing else. Well, having said that, there was uh, entertainment organised by us in the bar. Well, not by ourselves. It was run by the unit themselves. Different sections would run a quiz night. But you had to do everything poker, for yourself. Everything. There was, in fact, it only became obvious as the trip went on, the absolute isolation of the place. Even to get out of it, to get to Nairobi, which sounds simple could take up to two days. You're going down, hoping to get a flight down as far as Mogadishu. And then with all the problems with PMRs and getting permission to go and getting a seat on the plane and getting up there, you get stuck in in Mogadishu, stuck anywhere. And the absolute isolation and to get in and out of that country was very, very difficult. Now, when you went on a convoy, it was about once every when? Well, it, people think that we only went on uh, Monday and Tuesday was our main convoy. Down Monday, overnight in Mogadishu and back Tuesday. But in fact, it was convoys Wednesday to Wajid, moving the stuff that we'd brought up on the Monday, Tuesday convoy out uh, to Wajid to supply the uh, uh, the other battalion of the Indian Brigade who were stationed out there. That was their headquarters. And they themselves then used their own vehicles to get out further into the villages where they had uh, platoon size um, posts. The following day, then, we'd water runs, we'd fuel runs. So literally every day of the week, bar, say, Saturday and Sunday. And even on Saturdays, we were available to UN headquarters for the movement of displaced persons, uh, movement of refugees, which uh, we did on a number of occasions, but not often, maybe five or six times during the trip. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was quite a lot of work done, a lot of miles travelled. As I walked through the camp, a miniature village of curious dome-shaped tents made entirely of plastic... I came across Sergeant Nobby Clare sitting on a most impressive bench. Where'd you get the bench? Uh, one of the engineers proved it. Um, Damien McCormick, he made it. God, it's wonderful. Yeah. Made it while he was here? Yes. And who's, who's Kate's joint? Oh, uh, Kate, Kate Kearney's cottage. We have a Corporal Kearney here, and uh, he has a container down there, and we call it Kate Kearney's cottage. <laughs> like anyone who. Uh, like especially the fitters and people who work down the far end of the camp, yeah. they go in for a cup of tea in the mornings and. Uh, some water. What's the sign there? Oh, the sign's Christy Moore's sign. This is Moore Street you're in now at the moment. 
Were there ever any tense moments among the fellas themselves? I mean, since they were there with nowhere to go and nothing to do and, you know, were there ever sort of any fights or...? Well, that's one of the most amazing things I found because you would expect it to be, especially with uh, kind of uh, red-blooded men all living on top of each other. But in, in fact, the, the atmosphere in the camp was always very good. Uh, one of the things we set out at the start was that it would be a kind of a team effort, that if you see a fella carrying two bags, you just went up beside him and carried one of them for him. And this worked its way through the unit and uh, it was always good humour. And in fact, I can honestly swear there was never a punch thrown in the place, ever. And it was it was good good to say. And it's the type of thing that when you're there, even up to the last week, you cannot say that. You cannot say we've had a great run, we've had no accidents, we've had no one shot. It's only when you come back here now you can actually say it and look back on it, I suppose with pride. What was it like when you came out here in the beginning? Um, it took us a long time to acclimatise to the weather. It's very warm out here. But, um, is it hot all the time? Yes. Uh, it wasn't as hot as it is now when we first came out. It was only about 30 degrees. Now it goes up sometimes to 51 degrees centigrade. So during the hours of 12 to 3 or 4, you're better off to stay indoors. I expect you were in Lebanon at some stage. Oh, I was, yeah. Well, what's the difference between the two places? Uh, it's completely different here. The people here, they have no respect for life whatsoever. Uh, and they're not afraid of a gun. They're more afraid of a stick. Um, like when we go on convoys, if you point a gun at somebody, if you think they're in danger in your life, if you point a gun at them, they don't bother. But if you pick up a stick, we call them baho sticks. Bahos go away. And the stick is called a baho stick. So when you lift it up, they just go away. You don't have to tell them. What do you think about the Somalis? I find them very difficult to understand because we tend to look at them... Uh, as Somalia being a country and we've always believed that but in fact the closer you get to them you realise that they don't see themselves as a country like Somalia they realise they're Somalis but their, their, their first and main uh, allegiance is actually to their area they see themselves as area based clan based, sub clan based and not as we tend to look at them as Somalis as an indigenous group and that, that, that is the base for a lot of the misunderstandings and miscomprehensions people have about them. Did you like them? I did, but we were very apprehensive about them because most of the stories you hear out there is the guy you like most is the fellow who'll shoot you. The guy you give a job to, you give aid to, you fix him up, you help him. Suddenly someday something goes wrong that you mightn't even be aware of yourself. And rather than have a row at you or anything else, they, they literally shoot you. And it was... That fear was there all the time. And even during the period we were there, the number of NGOs that were... Sh and, like, shot dead, not just took a kind of a shot at them, they were killed. Was, purposely. Was purposely and directly and, uh, like, not from 100 yards away, shot from two or three feet and shot dead. And the number of people that that happened to, people who went out there specifically to help them, to help them as a nation, help them as a group, it, uh, it kept you very, very alert. And I suppose it kept you away from them uh, in a way. Again, there was a, a small difference from, Le a major difference from Lebanon, where we were in ground holding. We, we could actually do our job and do it very, very well in Somalia without ever talking to a Somali. And obviously we are, we're all armed uh, with um, style rifles and uh, we have an escort of our own with uh, GPMGs. But we stop outside and uh, we load our weapons here. Oh, you too? Yeah, yeah.
Okay. How many people live in the town? There's about, um, I suppose, the best guesstimate would be about 70,000. But you will see as you. Oh, it's, it's, it's In fact, oh. it's the largest inland city, as they would call it here, um, in Somalia. And in fact, it's a very important town because it's at the. Uh, very strategically located between Ethiopia, Kenya, and uh, Somalia. We go straight on. Just on the right hand side is the uh, Indian Hospital. And uh, the Indian Hospital treats upwards of four to 500 local Somalis every day. People trek in literally for 25, 30 kilometers. Incredible uh, distance to get treatment here in the Indian Hospital. And the Indians obviously do it as a humanitarian, um, for, for humanitarian reasons. And uh, if you just look right and left as you go down, you'll see the incredible damage that has been done during the Civil War. All of the buildings destroyed, no roofs on anything. See the ladies on the left hand side? I mean, you can see they're treated absolutely dreadfully. Carrying loads and loads of sticks on their back. Mm. I mean, it's, it's appalling the they're treated. They're literally worse than uh, pack animals. On the left hand side, you've got the main water point for the town. And in fact, that's the river, although it doesn't look very much like a river now, completely dry, dry. and bare. And we're going down through the main street of the town, and here on the left you've got very displaced persons, houses and shacks. It's almost beyond those. belief. They do indeed, Jim. And just up here on the right-hand side we have uh, what's known as the chat market. And uh, actually there's very little activity around now because the chat obviously hasn't come in. But, what's um, the chat? Chat is uh, a narcotic. It's a narcotic weed, basically, oh. which is uh, a stimulant, and it also acts as a hunger suppressant. And um, it's flown in from Kenya, where it's grown. And it's it's legal, believe it or not. Um, well, I mean, insofar as anything is illegal here, it's uh, it's legal. And uh, when the chat market is in full swing, it's quite incredible um, sight here. Literally thousands of people really? uh, queuing up for it, and they chew it, and it gives you a bit of a high. And uh, and then what do they do? I mean, would you notice that they're on a high? You would. You notice them in their appearance, and uh, if they're inclined to be aggressive, they're probably a bit more so when they're. On a high. Um, we're coming up to a fairly grim uh, area here where these displaced persons have their little shacks which are so familiar from the days of the famine and you can see how appalling they are. I suppose there must be literally on the size of a football field there are probably 300 families wouldn't be an exaggeration living. And are they living in those? They're living in those shacks, yeah. I mean in the old days this was a, a marvellous centre for wildlife and lion, elephant, leopard, everything was here but now they've either poached it or shot it or eaten it or whatever, you know. On the right hand side you've got an old truck, as you can see, just completely stripped. They're amazing, like, they can, they take literally everything. Uh, they salvage it and they use it to keep their old trucks running. I don't know how they do it. You see the houses on the left hand side completely gutted. No windows, no electrical plumbing, no conduit, no cable. They even dig up the, um, the piping underground. The women carry, say, 25, 30 litres of water in a container strapped on their back and they use a band around their forehead to support it. And they literally go off into the bush in bare feet across the thorns and the cash carrying this. It's, it's just it's unbelievable. Then a stop to meet some of the Indian engineers for a very welcome cold beer and some Indian snacks, all served on silver dishes by white-gloved waiters. I am Lieutenant Colonel Such, Officer Commanding Indian Engineers Company at Baidua. I take this opportunity to 
bid goodbye to number one Irish Transport Company and welcome number two Irish Transport Company. Our interaction with number one Irish Transport Company was a fabulous one. We always had very nice time with them, starting from the days when they lifted us from Mogadishu to this place. I look forward... Probably too, at the start of the trip we were very apprehensive about... Um, the security that the Indian uh, contingent was going to provide for us. But after a week, we got there on the 6th, and on the 15th, on one of the trips, the early trips to Mogadishu, actually it was on the way back from Mogadishu, um, their convoy was attacked. And this is where the Indians really came to the fore. And they, they just, they'd done what they were supposed to do, and as our guys did also. We were tuned up for our own security also. But the Indian um, escort consisting of about probably about 30, 30 people and maybe three or four vehicles. Uh, the convoy was fired upon and as our own order stated and we just we just drove through it but uh, and pulled up outside what's called um, the ambush zone or the killing zone as he called it in military jargon. And uh, the Indians then just turned around and went back after these people and four or five hours later the whole thing was finished. The Indians had complete control of the security and we, as I said, after week one, after week two rather, the 15th, we were very, very happy. As I said, we were very apprehensive at the start because we didn't, like we hear, you hear stories about the Indians mm -hmm. and uh, there's sort of a third world country and mm -hmm. again you were wondering was their army uh, any, any, any way professional but at the moment when we came back I have nothing but the height of praise for the Indian army. Can you sing a song? <laughs> My, 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 that's a very difficult proposition. <laughs> I've never sung, I've never sung. Oh, somebody told I, 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 I've been humming in the bathroom always. <laughs> no, yesterday there were the group of boys yeah. who had gone prepared and they sang some Indian song. I'll sing the same line for you, only one line, okay? Perfect. Chal tum safir mohali ore pinjare wali muniya Chal tum safir mohali ore pinjare wali muniya There are six doctors with the Indian contingent and later that night I met one of them. They had asked us to volunteer because they wanted lady medical officers and the nurses. When they came here, when our brigade came here, they found that there were a lot of women and children requiring treatment, the civilians and uh, being a Muslim country, they would have preferred women to treat the women. The doctor with the Irish Transport Company is Dr Nora Curran and she'd been there for one week when I talked to her and she also travelled on the Hercules. Did indeed, yes. What do you think about that? Oh, it was amazing. But I, I, I love flying and airplanes and it, I found it very exciting. It was very strange, wasn't it? It was indeed. It was indeed. My biggest problem was the... the um, the steward on the plane uh, said there was a latrine up front. <laughs> so I went up front expecting to find a latrine and what I found was a very low-lying bucket <laughs> on the floor near the cockpit. So a, a curtain was quickly provided and <laughs> it was great fun. Noisy but great fun. Yeah. Well, have you had your first clinic yet? We do have some spare time and we're able to go down to the, the local hospital which is badly in need of any kind of help at all. Um, the, the staff there are brilliant. They're all unpaid volunteers. And how are the facilities there? The facilities are appalling um, in the sense uh, that they, they don't have x-ray um, and terrible 
road traffic accidents and gunshot wounds coming in and the surgeon has to operate on these people and remove bullets and whatever without any x-ray facility. As with most places there, and all the generators and indeed the wind, difficult to find a quiet area. But I did talk to one of the Somalis who works there. There are four of them, very pleased to have a job, and think their $200 a month is just wonderful. I talked to Happy, as he is called. He was delighted with life now, not as it was just a short time ago, with maybe 300 people dying every day. People used to die for almost uh, 300 a day for hungry, but uh, there's no much problem now. All gone? Yes. Life is becoming normal, as used to be for, for the civil war. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. really? So that Re good? Really. And such a short time? Yes. Your business is going good. But the problem is sometimes banditry on the way to road. For example, when you're going to Mogadishu, there's some bandits. It's only those ones. There's no much problem. In downtown, the security is good. In Baidawa? Yeah. According to, if I compare Mogadishu and here, yeah. there's a big difference. Here really? is much better. The bandits, well, you don't see these people. Well, the thing about it is, when you don't see these people, you've got to worry because then you're wondering, where are they? When you do see them, when I, what I say, you've you got to visualise driving along the road from Baidoa to Mogadishu or even in around Mogadishu. And you see these sort of, if you like, um, Toyota pickups, even Toyota high ace vans like that, maybe with the roof um, cut out of it, and a machine gun. Uh, even an anti-aircraft type gun mounted on top of this and these are what we term technicals the word technicals derived from uh, again it was from the NGO organisations they, uh, they used to hire local Somalis to protect them against, against the other bandits if you know what I mean so they would hire local Somalis uh, to protect them now they couldn't put down on their payroll that they were paying people with guns and bullets to mind them so they just put everything down to technical 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 so and this is how the term technical came about and it's used over there uh, right up to Unisom HQ so most of the time going up and down the road they, they will pass them because again Unisom have no um, mandate to actually stop these people as as we did in Lebanon um, we wouldn't allow arms or ammunition through mm -hmm. checkpoints in mm -hmm. Lebanon yeah. but we didn't have the same um, the same orders out there they're just I suppose I, I don't know whether they, they must be ordinary Somalis but again, um, as you know, the whole thing is based on, out there is based on, I haven't even understood it yet and I still don't understand it, on a, a, a clan system, not the tribes, but clans and sub-clans. So it's all got to do with your brother first, then your son, or then your father, and then it goes out and it divides all the way out along. And these are all in little groups themselves, so they're all looking after their own little area. Now, whether it's their own village or whether it's their own field in, in, the, in, in the middle of a load of fields, I don't really know. But um, these guys, again, maybe 100 years ago, the same people were there, but 100 years ago they just had maybe um, bows and arrows and machetes. Now the same people are there and they have absolutely the, the, the biggest guns you can see. I mean, they have they had weapons there bigger than our weapons anyway. Huge, as I said, anti-aircraft guns. And unfortunately that's, what, that's how the Indians died there, the only um, two, three weeks before we left. There were seven Indians, um, unfortunately, died. Then a very different visit to the orphanage in Baidoa. Our president, Mary Robinson, also visited this same orphanage when she was there. 
Are they all without mothers and fathers? Yeah, they have not uh, parents at all. At all? Yeah. Neither mother nor father? No father, and some of them has a mother, but they have not a uh, father. And where were the mothers? And, uh, but uh, some of them, they have not mother and father. Oh, I understand, yes. Yeah. And their ages are from what? Their ages are uh, up to five until 14 years old. 14? 14 up to five. Yeah. And you have school? Yeah, school. they have two classrooms, uh, two elephant classrooms in here. Yeah. Six is afternoon and six is uh, morning time. I see. Yeah. And you have teachers? Yeah, we have... Uh, 850 children. I visited one room in which there were about eight kind of beds, planks with bits of blankets on top. In this room, 125 children slept. High on the list of good deeds performed by number one and number two transport companies was their help and care to the orphanage. While there, they built a brand new dormitory, a total luxury for them. Dormitory literally is four walls, a couple of windows and a roof to keep the rain off or the sun off during the haze. That's it. There's nothing else in it. We, uh, we, wired, we brought our electricians down, all right, and they wired in uh, light for night. But that was it. There was nothing else there. Uh, good walls... And it's a strong, uh, substantial building. And we kind of seal the floor with sealants as we have uh, just to stop the, the bugs and the nits and that kind of stuff. And at least they can uh, disinfect it and keep it as best they can now. And we've left as much of that equipment behind us as we could to keep themselves sufficient for the future. But they all lie on the floor. Oh, they lie on the floor. floor. They do everything on the floor. And the food situation as well is all cooked outside. Everything's cooked outside. They have a small area there. We try to, to improve that ourselves. Uh, there's a roof on it, but... The smoke, as it goes up, just hits the roof and comes back down. So we, we put a kind of a hole in the roof to let the smoke out. And, uh, but it's very basic. Literally, they, we supply them with plastic plates and the kids line up and they just get a plate full of rice and that's it for the day. You had special days in the camp for the, for the orphans too, didn't you? We had. We used to bring them up uh, every third week on a Saturday. We would go down and the original plan, we'd take up 100 now, the 100 often became 150, uh, which caused problems for our cooks who had uh, food and that laid on. But when we investigated this, we discovered that after the first and very successful party we had, uh, children actually started crying. And like it was, it was difficult not to let them on, so that, that's why the 100 became 150. And uh, the sections we had there, the transport sections, repair and recovery, the headquarters, all took part in this. It was run like an Irish sports day with uh, obstacle courses, music, trips in armoured cars, we spring up to the helicopters, show them television, jungle book, that kind of stuff, uh, culminating then in a bit of a feed-up and things like Coca-Cola and cans, which the kids have never seen. And uh, it's amazing kids have never seen Coke, the way they open it and stick their finger into it rather than drink it. But it was, it was, it was, good, it was very good for the children, obviously, but it was also very good for our own unit. It, it, mm. it helped to bind the people together and, and you could see the effort we were making. And as a result of that then, there was competitions running the camp, even uh, quiz nights and that the, traditionally the winning money was donated to the orphans and it went towards the running of those days mm. into purchasing little extras fellas going to Nairobi would be given a shopping list of sweets and biscuits and anything we get would be Good colourful last uh, Sunday morning Last Sunday morning when we left, we left Margaret, or left uh, by Doha, about ten minutes to nine. But it was, it was sad. Um, it wasn't sad for the guys leaving, 
our fellas leaving, it was, it was sadder now, as I said, for the Indians. The Indians really started, I think there's a big hole left there. But I, I don't know why, we just, uh, we seem to hit it off with the Indian contingent very, very well. Uh, the Indians were a very lovable. They went out of their way to to make, just to for us, especially in their last week, they have a sort of um, a custom when people are moving in India that uh, for the 10 days previous or about a week prior to your move and a week after your move that you pack up everything in your house your kitchen your cookers and all the rest of it and they feed you and they've done the very same with us for the last week we had our even though we still had some of our camp up and running we were still cooking for ourselves but they insisted that uh, we go for dinner three nights we went out for dinner went to different uh, different units in the, in the whole area and they feasted us absolutely tremendously they, they just went out of their way and even on the last morning, on Sunday morning, there were people there at six o'clock that had breakfast laid out for us on Sunday morning before we left. The main camp, the main body of the camp, actually came down in one day. Really? the whole thing down in one day and then the next day we packed it and put it into a container for coming home but it, the whole thing actually came down the camp itself probably took about three days to dismantle and pack up now again we were doing little bits mm-hmm. um, as, as the days went by but the, the main camp itself took about three days and what did you do then? well we were left with, as you know the rub halls do you remember the rub halls when you came out there the first when you arrived there on the 6th of March but well, that's what the unit stayed in for the last... Um, suppose it was only going to be two nights, but the two nights stretched into three, into four, into five, because we waited on a boat to come in. Oh, but, uh, lazy. Um Well, we had two halls, so there was 40 and 40 approximately. The two girls actually stayed in the truck. They were up to camp. a very good mission but it's uh, we we're very apprehensive it's got very dangerous out there and our main ambition was to get myself my men and my equipment home safe and sound what do you think it's going to look like brown why because he's in a hot country and he was in t-shirt and shirt that's all, really. Did I tell you anything about smell? No. Did you tell you about smell? Yeah. What did he tell you? About where the natives dressed and all. And just about the way they live. How is that? And that they just live in mud huts. And that they, like, when they're dead, they just put them lying out on the side of the road. And they can't do much about it and all. Thank you. Okay, welcome home. Thanks very much. Thank okay. you.